What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. You're joining us for the second part of our three-part episode with the journalist, author, political strategist and podcaster, Alistair Campbell. If you haven't heard part one, just jump back an episode and get up to speed. Alistair was live on stage for our Intelligence Squared event at London's Union Chapel recently to talk about his latest book, But What Can I Do?, the prospects of Starmer and Sunak in the upcoming election, and more ideas about transforming politics, which the book looks to address. He was joined on stage by Josh Glancy, editor of the News Review at the Sunday Times. If you're an Intelligence Squared member, we've got something extra for you. Head over to intelligencesquared.com membership to gain access to our exclusive members-only part three of the discussion, where Alistair and Josh took many more audience questions, including his thoughts on recent UK-EU relations, and also, should Keir Starmer bring back Tony Blair to his potential future cabinet, like Rishi Sunak has done with David Cameron? Or just hit subscribe on Apple for the audio. Now let's rejoin Josh Glancy and Alistair Campbell for part two of the conversation, with Josh asking about the public's lack of trust in politicians. So that, that lack of trust in politics and in politicians I mean, as you say, towards ever thus to some extent, yeah. but clearly it's, it's, it's got worse in recent years. Where do you root that to? I mean, do you, how much of that is about Brexit and the Brexit wars? Do you go back further? Lots of people might say the Iraq war, mm-hmm. and, and which obviously you were a central figure in, take, you know, the Blair government taking Britain to war in Iraq was a, mo- a great loss of trust in politics. So where, where do you... Tr- I think... It- <laughs> Look, there's, there's never been a kind of halcyon period when people have said, oh, I love my politicians, mm. and, you know. But I think, I, think, I think politicians have always had a certain respect, a residual respect. I think there have been a number of things. I think MPs' expenses did a huge amount of damage. I think the global financial crisis, I say in the book, I think the real, the real trigger for this successful populism was the global financial crisis where people felt the people who caused it got away with it and we, the people, paid a price. Mm-hmm. Um, Iraq, definitely. Um, I think that you have to accept that, you know, I know Tony didn't lie, I know I didn't lie, but when you have made, as part of your case, the fact you have stated in your honest conviction that this is about tackling Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction mm-hmm. and the inspectors go in and they don't find them, that's a pretty obvious trust moment. Mm. Um, so all of these things come together. And I think, you know, more recently, 
I do think that, I, I think one of the reasons why the interesting, I saw a very interesting polling presentation by John Curtis a few weeks ago. The two moments that have really moved the dial in our politics um, in recent years have been Partygate and the Trust Mini Budget. Mm. Um, Partygate, I think, was, was, I think people felt genuinely fundamentally offended by that. Yes. And offended by the lying that then followed. But I think that I, I do, for my point, I do think Brexit's a big factor in this because I think that as a country, we've moved on from the single most important and significant change that has been made through the ballot box. We've moved on from it despite the fact that it did involve lies and law-breaking, and there has been no accountability for, for either. So Johnson went eventually because of the lies over Partygate. Mm. He's never been held accountable for Brexit. So I think all of that combines to make people think, well, is there much point getting involved? And that's what I'm trying to address in the book is, yes, there is, because we have to get more and better people involved in the political process. Dealing with Brexit, I mean, I sometimes wonder if, in, in recent years, if, well, you mentioned HS2 earlier, and sometimes I wonder if actually what Brexit and to some extent the pandemic too have done is actually reveal a sort of deeper rot that had set in beforehand. Um, so to, and this is a sort of, well within public service. Yeah, and within public life and within, mm. and within our institutions. And that actually we, we'd sort of been drifting. It's, it's a bit like, you know, if you have a terrible breakup in your life or something and then you suddenly realise that actually your friends, you'd sort of drifted from them for quite a while or something. And that, mm. uh, to what extent do you put Britain's predicament now down to Brexit versus this kind of deeper malaise? That I, think, I think Brexit was the peak. Um, and look, I do think there's been a, you mentioned institutions, part of what populism does is to undermine institutions. Mm. Because the institutions which are there to hold politicians to account, to ensure the rule of law, to ensure a free and fair media, all these institutions, um, if you're a populist who's trying to say to people, I can, be a, I can solve this complicated problem by giving you a simple slogan to, that you can sort of tie your, tie your flag to, then the institutions fall victim to that. Um, and I actually think, I say in the book, I think we have to do a better job of protecting the institutions, mm. particularly, and that's difficult from a progressive perspective. Normally the progressives are the ones who are saying the institutions have to be modernised and changed. But actually I, I think the rule of law in particular, we've got to be really, really careful about that. But I think there has been a kind of a rot. I, I do think, I hate doing that thing where journalists can say, oh, you always blame the media. I'm not all, only blaming the media. I do think that media coverage of politics mm. has been really corrosive about politics. And politics, politics has not done a good job of defending itself. And our political system doesn't lend itself to it. I think, for example, that you know, the fact that most of what people see of politics is a minister says something, the shadow minister attacks it, and then somebody comes along and says, well, it's probably not going to work anyway. Mm. And the sort of general sense is this just, it's dysfunctional. And I do think, I, I, I really think we need to have a complete overhaul of the whole political system, starting with political education in schools, which is why I keep going to schools and trying to talk to kids about politics, lowering the voting age, compulsory voting, a, definitely a look at the electoral system. 
Mm. Um, I don't, I'm not one of those people who thinks PR is some kind of panacea. It's not. But our electoral system feels broken. Um, probably gr even greater devolution to the towns and cities and regions and the, the, the nations of the UK. Um, I just feel we, we're at a point where we, we feel broken. It feels broken. And the only way to, to fix it is to be honest about that and then to say, OK, as a country, what are we going to do about that? And it's, I worry that the election is going to be about very small things when it should be about big things. It's funny you mention ministerial announcements because it's something we've noticed at, at the Sunday Times in the last year or two, which is readers aren't responding to your classic political interview anymore. Uh, they're not really interested in reading sort of old-fashioned political coverage anymore. So we're actually having to look at quite different ways mm. to cover politics and, and connect it to people's lives or issues. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the sense that the media does have to respond to its readers, that there is, there is seemingly a shift well, there. Well, I hope there is, because I, I think it's become incredibly formulaic. Um, you know, if you think about it, so the, you get the Sunday papers, they go into the Sunday shows, the same person does the rounds, says the same thing, that leads the news for the day, that sets the debate for the Monday. And I think for a lot of people, they're just not even listening anymore. I think that system's breaking down, I really do. Well, I hope just it does, I hope it does, it needs to. From the front line, that's how it looks to me. But, yeah. um, but that, and, and to be honest, that's why I think, I mean, I've been absolutely stunned by the success of our podcast, but I think it is actually because it's, it's just a bit more thoughtful and mm. deep than what I think people feel they're getting from turning on the telly and watching the news. Well, we can thank Rory Stewart for that. But, uh. <laughs> That's def definitely the best line so far. <laughs> and he will be so happy. And I know there's a friend of his who's here tonight who'll be texting him right now saying... <laughs> um, you, mentioned, you mentioned populism. Obviously, there are many other big elections happening this year. Uh, India, we just had Taiwan, but there'll be a lot of attention on America. Mm. You're quite a keen student of American politics. Um, I'm not going to ask you to get a win because it, it's, it's, it's something akin to a coin toss, but what do you make of it all? Do you, I mean, I've written in the past, I, I spent a few years in Washington, that I just thought from day one they were mad to run Joe Biden again, given his age and, you know, sort of general vibe. Um, what do you think? Do, do, you, do you think that was a mistake, or is that, is it too, too, is that premature, do you think? Well, if you see it from his perspective, I mean, Trump is an awful phenomenon, but he is a phenomenon. And, you know, we, we, I spoke to Hillary Clinton when she was in Belfast for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And... You know, I said, it's really hard to look back. It must be incredibly hard for her. She's written a whole book about how hard it is. But I don't know what she could have done differently in the campaign because she was up against this phenomenon. This she animal. could have gone to Wisconsin. That was the... She could have done lots of could have, would have, should have. But my point mm. is on the strategy she pursued, mm. I could understand it. Now, Biden did beat him. Mm. He beat him. Mm. And we talked to this guy, Tucker Eskew, on the podcast last week, who's a Republican strategist who's now in the kind of anybody but Trump um, camp. And he said, the thing you have to understand about to become the American president, you have to think that you can be the American president. And even though lots of people might say, oh, I could do that, very, 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 very few people on earth 
say to themselves, do you know what? I could be American president and mean it. Joe Biden thinks he can still be American president. And I think unless Jill, his wife, says to him, Joe, don't do it, which there's no sign she is saying that, he's going to go for it. At which point, then it has to become, well, do you want him or do you want the other guy? Um, now, I agree with you. I think that a lot of people will be thinking, Eek. you know, is he going to survive four years? Do we really want Kamala Harris, etc.? Equally, I still think he's got a good record to point to. He's a pretty good campaigner. And Trump, albeit he's a phenomenon, he's actually a pretty easy political target. Um, but I agree, you know, everywhere, everybody I talk to in America says, you know, can't they both just disappear? <laughs> That's kind of the feeling of it. I well, still think, I, I think Biden will win, though. Well, there was, I mean, the reason he won last time, well, the main reason he won was that there was a, there was a constituency, and the, call them swing voters, call them moderates, who just couldn't face Trump again. Yeah. They, they didn't necessarily like Biden, they're not necessarily liberal, but they just thought, this guy, we just want to switch him down, switch him off, turn the volume down, and they were just exhausted by it. And I, I do think that constituency is still there. Um, but you, you must be pretty worried by some of the polling at the oh, moment. Yeah. I mean, no, obviously, poll, we're nine poll, months out. But. The polling is horrific. But don't forget, if you go back to the midterms, Trump was dead. Mm. Trump was finished. It was all over. Things swing around very, very quickly. I still think the bit... I mean, Trump clearly thinks that every time he's on TV... Every time he's got the chance to be on TV in one of these courtrooms, he takes it. Because thus far, it's helped him up. I think that will... I think it could go the other way quite quickly. I think there will come a point where the legal troubles become too bad. And, and also, I... Th I th but, you know, your initial question was, what do I think has happened? I find it unfathomable. I mean, I covered Thatcher Reagan. I just, I, I, I actually mentioned in the book about a speech, Reagan, Reagan's last, look up Reagan's last speech as American president, okay? It's an amazing piece of oratory. But the other thing that's incredible about it, you couldn't imagine Donald Trump saying one word that he <laughs> says. It's actually a peer of praise to immigrants. It's an amazing speech. Mm. Um, so... What has gone, and the other thing, we talked to Tucker about this, is that, because he's a kind of big Christian guy, I just don't know what's happened in the American psyche that, have you seen the Trump Made God film? The Trump uh, God Made Trump. No, I haven't. Oh, you've got to see it. It's about evangelicals. Yeah, it's the evangelicals yeah. have made this film called God Made Trump. It's not funny. It's terrifying. It's terrifying that they, they believe that. So... What has happened to that psyche? I just don't know the answer to that question. You probably have a better feel for it because you lived there. Yeah, well, I spent, spent a lot of time in those evangelical churches, um, mostly getting COVID, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but so, crystal ball, say, imagine Trump does win and Starmer wins. Um, how does Starmer approach that? I mean, even for the campaign, they're, still, they're already having to reach out because you need to have relationships yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, we're as closely allied to America as we ever were, really. Possibly, mm, mm. You know, you see us bombing together in the Middle East yet again. Um, how, do, how does Starmer and Labour approach Trump? Um, it's tricky. It's tricky. I think you, you, you have to do it like Theresa May did it. I, you, know, you, 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 you could tell from the body language that Theresa May was not enjoying it, mm. but she said the right things. And I think you have to do that. Um, but you also have to reach a point where sometimes you have to call him out. 
Um, but I, I think that, I don't imagine there's a single person in this hall who thinks that, not just um, Keir Starmer, but I suspect Rishi Sunak would be really worried about the return of Trump. I mean, the whole thing with NATO is terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. You know, and, and, and it's not just the fact that he can think about it, it's the fact that he can do it on a whim. And what happened last time is that, you know, we all persuaded ourselves that he'll get in there, but then the grown-ups will surround him. The grown-ups were kept out of the room, and then the ones that he got in there, even they couldn't cope with it. But so they did hem him up. in. They, they hemmed him in. They hemmed him in. But a Trump that comes back having, you know, what is it, Washington, is it the Washington Post that has five million words of lies? Mm. They've got a, this database of all the lies he told as president. It goes to five million words. You've had the insurrection. You've had people dying as a result of it. You've had scandal upon scandal. You've had this recent liable case. I mean, we're talking about a level of this should normally do for a political career mm. that is up there. And yet, he's still in the fight. So that, he will be so emboldened if he wins. He literally will be able to think he can pick up the phone to Zelensky and say, Vladimir, Vladimir yeah, is over. You're on your own, sir. Yeah, you're on your own, mate. You know, it's up to you. Do you want to mm. lose the whole country or do you want to lose what you've lost already? Because I've now got to go and talk to Kim Jong-un to say thanks for the nice letter he sent me last week. You know? So I think it's terrifying. So I always think it's, it, it, it's a great danger sometimes in British politics to try and draw too many uh, conclusions from American politics. Yeah. But I would say, looking at Biden, it seems to me that one weakness that he has accrued is that he hasn't really been seen to do anything about immigration. Mm. Do you think that's something that Starmer should take note of, whether in his campaign or if he does become prime minister, that actually he can't afford to not to sit on his hands yeah, on that you issue. Have to, you, 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 you look, and not by the way, not just Keir Starmer, right across Europe, this mm. is like really big at the moment and very, very difficult. Um, and you either have to, I mean, what Angela Merkel did in, you know, taking in a million and via Schaffendass mm. and all that um, was very big, very bold, very brave, and I, I, you could argue the right thing to do. The political consequences have been pretty profound. Mm. Um, you now have a situation, so here we are, we're talking about, you know, could Britain get back into the European Union? You know, th there is an argument to be made about whether it is developing into a European Union that we'd want to be in. Um, you've got yes. the Sweden Democrats now in government. You've got the, um, we just had an election in Finland, which actually was pretty good from the progressive perspective. But you've got Maloney already in power. You've got the AFD, you know, these, I th I've been really impressed by these protests against them, but the reason for them is because they are now so high in the polls mm. in several parts of the country. You've got Wilders. Okay. So it's the, it's the conclusion from that that Brexit wasn't such a bad idea after all? No. <laughs> Brexit <laughs> remains. <laughs> How dare you come to my event? First, first question to that. that first. <laughs> uh, no, I, I still think it was a terrible thing to do. And, and by the way, I think one of the worst things about it is that Europe has lost the influence of the UK within it. Mm. Um, I, I imagine that the Franco-German alliance, which has always been a big motor, would have been strengthened by our departure. Bizarrely, it's been weakened. Um, so you've got, you've got Marine Le Pen. She's pretty much doing nothing at the moment, but she could win. 
Um, you've got the AFD, as I say, on a path to government. Not probably the, they're not going to be the biggest party, but mm. they could be in a position where they have to be part of government. So that's, you know, that's all evolving, and a lot of that is to do with immigration. So yes, it has to be addressed, but I still think that, you know, one of the reasons uh, I'm obviously I'm not a nationalist, I'm not a supporter of the SNP, but I, I I do think it's good that we've at least got one party that sort of talks up for speaks up for immigration. Mm. And let's be honest, we as a country getting older and older, um, artificial intelligence coming along the way that it is, you know, the, the, the need for immigration is not going to dry up anytime soon. So I, I just wish that we could be a bit more honest about that. But Keir, I think, is playing... I, I completely support what he's trying to do. Politically, he has to do what he's doing on immigration. So a couple more questions from me, and then we're going to go to the audience. So have a think on what you might want to ask. Um, you mentioned cynicism earlier, and that's a, quite a big theme of the book as well, is, is resisting cynicism. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about that. What, what can one do? What are the more constructive approaches to politics that can overcome the, the mistrust, the cynicism, uh, the apathy, frankly, that has set in for a lot of people? Well, it's hard. It's really, it's really hard. And I, and I get why. I think, I think, first of all, one of the things I try to do in the book is to be fair and reasonable about politicians as a breed. Um, there have been some terrible people in politics, um, you know, through history. But in the main, it's a pretty tough job. It's a difficult thing to do. You put yourself out there, particularly in the modern age, you get loads of abuse. So I think we should all of us try to see something positive in them. Um, I think more importantly, I think we should try to resist. And this is really hard, and it's going to get harder because of AI and fake news and all that stuff. We should try to resist going for the first thing that comes at us about any issue. We should mm. try to inform ourselves better. And we should take more ownership, I think, of, of what we think about politics as individuals and as, and as communities. I, it, and it's very hard to do. I found myself... There was a classic example today. There's a poll doing the rounds, and it says that Labour support among the Muslim community has halved mm. since October yeah, 7th. That. Right. It's not true. It's not true. When you go down to the numbers, it's way more complicated than that. And, but there's, that's the kind of thing that I think... So when I saw it, I thought, OK, interesting, need to check it out. Now, what you can't do, you can't spend your whole life being a kind of, you know, your own journalist. Mm. You can't do that. But I think that what I would say is, is reserve... Have scepticism about everything that is put towards you but don't have cynicism. Don't imagine that everybody's lying, lying to you. Don't imagine that things can't be improved. Don't imagine that things can't work. And look for and enjoy the stuff that does work. And, mm. you know, there's plenty of it. Mm. There's plenty of it. Yeah, I mean, one, one positive aspect of the immigration issue is that lots of people still want to come and live in this country, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would also say I'm extremely biased on this, but I generally find actually not going to social media for my news, but actually reading newspapers I trust first gives me much... Because they have done, gone through the poll and actually crunched the numbers or what. Yeah. What I, what I tend to do for my own kind of... Because it's, it's very hard to know how... Um, I was in a, a secondary school last, last week, 17, 18-year-olds. Nobody physically... One person physically read a paper. Mm. Um, about three watched the BBC, one watched Sky, none watched GB News. Um, so they were all on kind of different social media stuff, but actually, they kind of they were talking about all the same things. 
So we're kind of getting there. What I do when I'm interested in something, I do now go and I've, I've got one of my golden rules is read books, not newspapers. Sorry. Um, as as you're reading. But you can do both. You yeah. can do both. And the other thing is I, 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 I have a little sort of Michael Gove in my head saying, you know, we're sick and tired of experts. And I go and find a genuine expert on something. Mm. And I Google them and I see if they've said anything about. And if they haven't, I might send them an email and say, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, of course, not everyone's in a position to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are, though. We are. We are in a position to do that. Well, they might not reply. I they suppose, might not. But, well, they don't um, always reply to me. That's fair. Um, last question for me, and then we'll, we'll move to the audience. Just on the book, it was a, it was a number one bestseller, so, so. Yeah. so what impact have you noticed it having, and how did that, you obviously had hope for it in terms of how you, the impact it would have. Did that did live very, up to expectations? It's very hard to measure. Um, you'll be pleased to know as a Rory Stewart fanboy that his book is sold even better. Um, somebody tell Rory I said that as well. Um, I don't know, it's very hard to measure. Very hard to measure the impact of a book. Um, I mean, I showed you the book I was reading, the backstage, The Boy with the Striped Pajamas. It sold 11 million copies in 50 languages. Um, how do you, I don't know how you measure the impact, but I've been, I've been struck by when I've gone into schools in particular. Today, classic examples. My next book is actually Politics for Primary Schools. Um, so I'm going in to talk to primary schools and what have you. So today I was with this school council. And so these were the, the last years, so 10-year-olds 10, 10 in the main. And I said, come on then, any of you, would any of you think about going into politics? No way, no way, they said. So then we talked about it for an hour, and by the end, I asked them the same question. And I said, right, come on, would any of you think about going to politics? And I had about five maybes. Um, what I, what I've, I have had messages, letters from people who've said that it's made them think differently about politics. Mm. That's, a, that's a minimum I'd like to achieve. Mm. Um, and then, the, then I have had some. I had a letter the other day from a guy who's decided, as a result of reading the book, to try to get a seat. Now, I had a chat with him, and I said, I think, you know, where things are in the electoral side, you might think about going for a council seat first. Mm. But he's decided he's going to try and get on a shortlist. Fair enough. So I've definitely had people who've said that this made them want to get... I say in the introduction to the book that my, my, my vision for it, I like to have long-term vision, I like mm. to visualise things, is that on the day I die, in about 40 years, <laughs> on the day I die, that the then Prime Minister says that this book made them go into politics. <laughs> okay. Moderately could ambitious. Happen. It could happen. Moderately. <laughs> could be one of these guys. Okay, so we are going to open up to questions. I hope we've got some lights. Uh, we Can't are going to have some thing. lights. We're going to have some and microphones. Also, by the way, oh, I, know this venue, wow. I know this venue quite well because I come to lots of folk music events that are here. All I can say is, I hope you brought cushions. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're not the comfiest pews, are they? No, no, no. Keeps everyone alert. You, you know next time, bring a cushion. Um, you've heard this before, but please do ask questions. Please don't make statements. I beg you. Um, okay, so where are the roving mics? Do you want to just find I, a couple of yeah, find a mic. pew with a couple of people that have their hands up? That looks like a good place to start. I'll start up. Uh, Hello. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Alistair. Hello. Um, 
So a lot of my friends at the moment are really, really pissed off with the Labour Party about their stance um, on the ceasefire, etc. Yeah. How do I convince them to go and vote and that it's about more than that? Well, you've, is that what you want to do? Yeah, I want to convince them that they still need to vote. You don't share their anger? Well, I do share their anger, right. but I still want to yeah, okay. vote. Um, I suppose all we can do is try to explain why you think their position is as it is, and then, even if that fails to persuade them on the specific issue, say that, you know, in the end, you have to decide whether that is going to stop you from actually allowing this Conservative government to continue. Because um, in the end, that is the choice. There's no such thing as a perfect candidate. There never has been. Abraham Lincoln was not a perfect human being. Nelson Mandela was not a perfect human being. Um, now, on the position about why, I think why Labour's position is as it is, is several, several reasons. The first is, I think they don't want it to be their main thing. That's a sort of tactical, political thing. On the issue itself, I think part of Labour's thinking is that if and when Keir Starmer does become Prime Minister, one of the most important relationships he's going to have is with the United States. He will, as Prime Minister, have way more influence on this debate than he has now. Does he really want to use up political capital now with the Americans in a way that would make your friends feel a bit better for a few days before they then probably got pissed off with the 28 billion thing? Okay, so I think it's I think it's explaining it's trying to explain that the that the, the 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 position that he's adopted is not as simple, cannot be met just by a slogan or an act, which you think will have no consequences, but it could have consequences. Does that make sense? And then I think on the bigger picture, it's you know this is the worst government for young people there has ever been, and you know. In a sense, you've got to say to them, just get off your high horse and vote Labour. Okay. Um, there's a lady there in, a, in the beige-ish. Yeah, we're only taking oh, questions from women. Okay. Yeah, sorry. New rules. <laughs> okay. Hi. Um, so I think it's very obvious to sort of everybody, really, that the state of society and our, all of our institutions are in a pretty sort of abhorrent um, position, and that's obviously due to sort of the decade plus of horrendous policies under uh, uh, current and previous governments. Um, so it's obviously fair to say that whoever comes into power, and hopefully that is Labour, will have a you know horrendous sort of challenge ahead of them. So what advice would you sort of give to the, you know, hopefully incoming Labour government about how we re- frame and change the narrative that we've kind of got around us about Labour being not a safe pair of hands with the economy, and what do you think our priorities should be when it comes to public spending? Um, it's interesting you frame your question like that, because of course I would say that one of the reasons why some of your friends probably are a bit pissed off with Labour is that the framing of economic safety, security, not frightening the horses, is very much the kind of driving economic narrative. It was interesting, Rachel Reeves and Keir both spoke at, at this big business event the other day, and it was very much aimed at, at them, you know, reassuring them. So, and I think that's, that's sensible politics. Um, I think that in terms of, of spending, 
Look, it's going to be really difficult. There's no doubt about that. It's going to be very, very difficult. The demands are going to be enormous. You know, you, you've got local government in this country that's facing meltdown. Literally, some of them facing bankruptcy. You've got, as I said earlier, you've got this report from the Defence Select Committee that is really saying our defences now are not in a fit state for the scale of danger that we're facing. You've got people desperate for the health service to be built up. You've got education that is, you know, you literally got schools falling to bits. So rebuilding the public realm. When you say what would my priority be for public spending, it's rebuilding the public realm. But it's going to take a lot of time. And I think it's just, it's just being, it's being honest about that. But then I think there has to be... I, what I hope for Keir Starmer... I think I'm reading a book at the moment, Nick Thomas Simmons, who's a member of the Shadow Cabinet, he's written some very, very good biographies of past Labour leaders. And I'm reading his book about Clement Attlee at the moment. And I hope, my big hope for Keir Starmer is actually he's going to be, you say 92, 97, mm. that it's going to be more 1945. That it's actually, that he's going to get in and then the country will be ready for all sorts of things that aren't even being talked about at the moment, because the, the language is very much about, it's about tax, it's about borrowing. I think we're going to have to completely reconfigure how public services are delivered. Artificial intelligence is going to be an important part of that. So I, I'm hoping that it will be all of those public services, but it, it will be in taking a completely different approach across the piece. And I think the country will be ready for that. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. If you didn't want that conversation to end, luckily, if you're an Intelligence Squared member, it doesn't have to. The exclusive Members Only Part 3 of Alistair and Josh's conversation is available right now for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com membership to get all that now or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Thanks for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.